The death drive is the desire for all of that desire to stop. I can't desire as much as the system wants me to desire. So I'm gonna fucking be self-destructive. Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be looking into an essay that was written by Patrick Blanchfield from the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research in Late Light, which is, I guess, is that their, like, blog is that the the brooklyn institute blog i believe that it is yeah yeah do you um, remember when we when we were talking about possibly starting the los angeles institute (laughs) for social research which would have been called laser laser of course i remember man i fucking i i still will we'll have to digitally we'll call it the (laughs) metaverse the metaverse institute for social research we'll call it maser I don't know. Laser was pretty awesome, dude. I wanted to just the acronym. I know. Laser is too cool. Yeah. Maybe we can figure out another way to to do it. But fuck yeah, I remember. So Nearby possible world that happened. That's right. It's actually happening and flourishing right now. And in that world, we are the Philosopher Kings and our publications are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so what we're going to talk about is this uh, essay that Patrick wrote called Death Drive Nation. And the subtitle is Putting the Pedal to the Metal. Troy, can you give a little elevator pitch on what the essay is discussing for people? Yeah, so this was written a little while ago, right? It's not it's not super new and certainly made the rounds on uh, lefty social media and was highly praised by, by nearly everybody, it seems like. So this is it's not a surprise or something unique we're bringing to the discourse here, right? Um, but basically what's interesting about it is Blanchfield takes the kind of popular Freudian notion of the death drive, gives, I think, a, I'm actually, for a short article, a pretty, um, like, perspicacious sort of uh, exposition of what the death drive is, which is notoriously hard to do, um, mm-hmm. I would think, given that I feel like I still don't really understand what the hell Freud has even tried to do with, with the notion of the death drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then applies it to kind of basically like the the popular American under, or view or understanding or reaction to um, the pandemic regulatory measures surrounding the pandemic reaction to at the time of the writing of this article, 750,000 dead, but now we're approaching, we're well over 800,000, aren't we? Yeah. I think it's coming coming to 900. Yeah. 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 So that's what we'll talk about now. And of course we'll post a link down to the article below so you can check that out. It's a short little essay. Um, it's, it's, intended for popular consumption too so um definitely feel free to to check that out so but you can click the link down below and you can give that a read uh we got a little bit of housekeeping just wanted to remind you guys that we've got a twitter so you can follow us on twitter owls underscore at underscore dawn we've also got an insta same handle owls underscore at underscore dawn and we have a new producer who is handling our shit maddie we'll have to get maddie on one of these days just to say a a quick little 
hello. Matter of fact, maybe we'll do it for this episode. Maybe she already has. Maybe I put this, um, maybe <laughs> we put this at the beginning of the episode. And if she has, then you've met her. And if not, then for soon to be. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so you can check that stuff out. And then um, Troy has some stuff to say about our Patreon. So what's up, man? Yes, we do want to mention that we just um, put out the call to the patrons, uh, the parliament out there, to suggest some topics, possible topics, for the next patron-sponsored episode. For those who don't know, maybe joined us recently, uh, all the patrons get to suggest topics for a patron-sponsored episode. In that thread, Austin and I pick out three, four, five of whichever the topics we're interested in and or think that we can best cover and then we run those options as a poll and the patrons choose the topic for that patron sponsored episode. So that call is now on Patreon. So if you're a patron, run over there and put however many of your favorite topics you want us to address in that thread. And if you're not a patron, sign up and start suggesting topics. Yeah, and uh, definitely, too, just a, a kind of plea to, if you can, throw us some pennies. Um, it's going to help go to paying our new producer, and I need a new fucking microphone and, uh, yeah, other things like that. So um, it really does go a long way in helping us to be able to do a little bit more and, and ease things up um, so that we can continue making sick content, which we are – we're back now. We're back for real. I know we say that sometimes, and then we take a little bit of a break. So we're back for, <laughs> for however long we're back for, but we are going to be – Consistent moving forward. So yeah, head over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. All right, let's get into this thing. But we got to start off before we get into the Death Drive Nation essay with the favorite part, some people's favorite parts, maybe the most essential part, because you got to clear out the bad juju before you can get into the good the good discussions, right? This is the shitty oh, mini. Yeah. This is where, where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off. So T-Roy, what's got you by the gonads? So I was thinking, what's a, what's a good topic I could bring up to gain some wisdom from you, Austin, about? <laughs> and I'm always looking for these things, right? And one just <laughs> happened to come across my Twitter feed randomly. And I'm sure you know about this. It was trending all over Twitter a couple of days ago. And it was this guy, Jeremy Schneider, who I guess is a – he writes for like the NJ.com. It's like a culture uh, web magazine or something like that. And he okay. had this seemingly innocuous, very short tweet that said, please know if you're someone who brings a book to the bar, nobody likes you. And so oh, yeah. there's, a whole, there's a whole story from here. <laughs> well, hold on. It's not your shitty minute. You don't get to say fuck that guy until I say something first. Okay. Right? Okay, okay, okay. So save your expletives for a minute. Okay. So, so the first thing I thought – I had many thoughts and there's a whole story here. Like, I guess he kind of took it back a couple days later after like going to a bar with a book and experiencing it for himself, which like good job for doing actual science, like anecdotal evidence form of science. Right. Um, <laughs> that said, you know, I was wondering, you're a, a connoisseur of the taking a book or doing work in general um, at a coffee shop whether it's reading for pleasure or for work or whatever, you're a big fan of the coffee shop work. And, I'm, and at I'm bars. A little bit, and at bars. Well, well, hold on. I'm, I'm making, there's a dialectic here, right? Okay, step sorry, by sorry. Step. sorry, sorry. So you're definitely a connoisseur of the reading slash doing work of any kind, academic work, intellectual work at a coffee shop. Yes. And I absolutely agree about reading for pleasure. 
at a coffee shop. It's really difficult for me, on the other hand, to do actual like academic work at a coffee shop. I've done it before when necessary. And I can see how sometimes there can be a rhythm to it that's helpful, but it's still mostly non-ideal for me. Okay. Um, so I did want to ask you, um, I guess you could, re- if you want to respond to that and, and what you think about that, that's fine. But the bar thing really perplexes me because I, I know that you've also done this too. And I certainly have no sort of moral issue with reading or doing work of any kind at a bar. And I don't, I definitely don't, wouldn't judge somebody negatively um, for thinking that. For me, it's purely a different strokes for different folks kind of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I can't understand the headspace of someone who not necessarily likes reading in a bar. Because, I mean, if you like it, you like it. Like, I don't, I don't really give a shit. Like, we all have our different environments that we thrive in for doing stuff. And I love doing pleasure reading in a coffee shop. I don't imagine a bar would be that different. Although, I guess it depends upon the bar. Like, I don't think you can go to, like, a dive bar and do something like that. I wouldn't, at least, I should say. So, I, I want to understand what that's like from the first person point of view. So I know it's my shitty minute. And so (laughs) I shouldn't be asking you to platform, but I'm so, I'm just perplexed at the very idea of, of, of doing work or even really pleasure reading in a bar. It's just, it's, it's foreign to me. It's alien to me. I I don't, I don't get what about, and maybe they don't even know what the difference is between a coffee shop and a bar because one seems great for pleasure reading and the other seems like for me, it'd be totally non-ideal. So I, I am asking you for explanation here on my shitty minute, but it's my shitty minute. I control it. So I guess I can do whatever I want. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Uh, so first of all, fuck that guy. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, let me do it this way. I'm going to do it via narrative. And so some of my favorite experiences of reading at a bar have to do with the place where I was doing the reading. And it kind of then became... Um, like a local, so to speak. So when I lived in Scotland, in Dundee, there was this contemporary art museum called the Dundee Contemporary Art Museum. And it was probably my favorite place to go in the city. It had two movie theaters and uh, one of them was a little bigger than the other. And sometimes they would do it where like one of the theaters would show like a more blockbustery type of film. Like maybe the Spider-Man film would come to Dundee and it would show at that theater. Um, there was also like a big theater in Dundee, like outside, a little bit further outside of, of the city center that would show all those things too. But this was like more of like the artsy place. And so sometimes they would show um, a bigger film, but they would always at least have one or two also throughout a day screenings of, you know, indie films, inter- like films films from all around the world. And then so it was just a great place to go. Then upstairs they had um, an art exhibit. And then uh, and uh, that was kind of a cool place. They always had like a revolving door of different exhibitions that were going on. And a lot of times it was like Dundee locals and things like that that would uh, like because there's a great um, art school in Dundee called Duncan in Jordanston, I think is what it was called, if I can remember rightly. And um, so a lot of graduates from that really prestigious art school would end up like working and presenting their art there and stuff like that. And then just other amazing artists from around Scotland. Anyway, um, and then you have this kind of like cafe slash restaurant area downstairs with an outdoor seating area and stuff like that. Long story short, one of my favorite things to do was go there, go see a film, oftentimes with a friend, sit around and talk about that film 
And then I would maybe sit down and do some reading for a bit or do some writing, have a glass of wine. Sometimes I would, uh, you know, I guess I can say this now is I would take a little joint with me and I would just have a couple of puffs while I was on my walk in. And then you just kind of roll it up in tinfoil and I would just kind of like zip, zip, ziplock it and kind of stick it in my pocket. And then, you know, a couple hours later, go out for another little top up and then come back in and keep writing. Um, and for me, it was about the whole kind of aesthetic experience that just made it really rich to me. And I usually found that between either beer or a glass of wine, one through three, I was in the groove, man. I was in the groove. And then after that, you start to get a little fucked up. And then it was like I would just put my books away and then I would just hang out with my friends and we'd end up at a club later that night. But that was pretty much what I did uh, when I was starting PhD research. That was pretty much what I did, like often. And so for me, I just have fond attachments to that whole thing. So then everywhere I moved after that, um, I would always try to find a place. So when I moved to Dublin then, for example, I, my, I would take my Kindle with me for the first two weeks especially, and I would go to various pubs. And my goal was kind of like, twofold. One, to find a pub that would have the best and cheapest pint of Guinness in Dublin. And then two, to kind of explore as I would walk from pub to pub. And I brought my Kindle with me. This is where I read Nosgard. Um, this is where I read, a, I think I read a lot of Foucault when I was there uh, doing this as well. Um, and I spent like all day because I, it was before I started my contract with work and stuff like that. And I hadn't found a place to live yet. So um, it was kind of like I was able to just take in the city this way. And inevitably, every single time I did this, I would meet somebody because Dublin's also a very friendly city. And someone would hear my accent when I was ordering a new pint or um, they would just kind of see me sitting there with my Kindle and they'd be like, hey, what are you reading? What's up? You know, and sometimes it would turn it would start off as like playful banter, like, oh, what the fuck are you doing reading in a bar, man? Come have some fun. But then I'm pretty good with improv and connecting with people. So I would somehow invariably be able to like meet these people and I would end up going out with them or they show me around. And a couple of them remained my friends for the entire time that I was in Dublin. So those are the experiences that I had. And I just enjoy, maybe there's this fantasy that I have in my mind of like, of like the French academic who sits at the cafe and has various people like across the busy streets of Paris. Like in one moment, you'll have like a group of like uh, dancers uh, come by and they're like, talking about this new ballet that they're putting on over at the at the theater <laughs> and then in the next minute you have like some comrades coming over that are doing like political action and they're telling you about this event and then in the next instance it's like a colleague from the university and then the next is like just your friends or your partner shows up and you've been sitting at this cafe drinking you start with espressos and then maybe you move to cocktails and beers and then by the end of the night you go to the theater or you go to the action or or something right and it's super 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 bougie as fuck, I know, but I just had that fantasy in my mind, and I think this was kind of my way of living that fantasy. So I don't know if that – that's like my narrative way of, of trying to answer the question. Does that illuminate at all? Yeah, so all that makes sense to me, and I think you're even maybe selling it short by putting this narrative qualifier on it because I think you're – it's not pure. I mean, it's obviously it has this narrative form, right? This explanation, but you're also, I think, pointing to some objective factors about community and solidarity and stuff like that that are that are super important, and I think probably make working in a public place superior in in certain ways than purely privately. Um, and yeah. I, I think that's absolutely true, even for people who are more 
introverted and need a controlled environment like I do. And that's, I think, absolutely true, especially of um, reading for pleasure in a coffee shop, which I think is a wonderful experience. And I like doing that all the time. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. Uh, and you, you got at this when you mentioned how beers one through three, you tended to be um, like kicking ass. And then after that, it was a problem. Yeah. In, in yeah. the UK, and I, and I did this too, but I lived in Scotland. And if you go and you get a pint of Guinness, a yeah. pint of Guinness takes you 30 minutes to drink approximately if you're working while doing it or reading or doing something else while, while drinking it, right? And it's yeah, like yeah. it's like half of a meal. So three Guinness, Guinness, is like you you're full, <laughs> Like you yeah. can't even over a, even over a couple of hours, like you're full and you don't really ever get drunk and you barely get buzzed after three Guinness in yeah. three hours or whatever, right? And so I can see how that wouldn't hinder at all. Certainly wouldn't hinder reading for pleasure and probably not even like more intellectually intense academic work, right? But here in the states, man, like I live in a hipster fucking town in the south. It's all every double, fucking double beer, IPAs. <laughs> every fucking beer is like 10, 12% ABV, man. Like, and, and you drink it in like 15 minutes, right? Because it's, it's fairly light compared to Guinness at least, right? And so you can't, you can't fucking work like that. And you can, you can barely even read for pleasure drinking stuff like that, right? So it just – it seems not conducive. And obviously like, you know, issues with like lighting and – and, and stuff like that's, I think, there too. And suppose the coffee shops would generally have a little bit more of soft, more illuminative focus. Um, so it's just it's just difficult for me to get in the headspace of being able to certainly not do academic work in a bar atmosphere. But even the, the, the reading for pleasure thing seems a bit difficult for me. Although I see how in the UK context, um, I, I, and I certainly read for pleasure over, you know, several guinea at times. So that... That seems much more conducive to me. I don't. I don't quite understand the bar thing. But again, this is not a moral issue. This is purely just trying to understand other people's points of view. And so it was helpful for you to to put that out there. I, th- I think I see how it can work in certain contexts. If this is a fucking moral issue, like think about think <laughs> think about the monks who were involved in deep meditative spiritual activities you know making their making their brews and and think about like all of the the history of humanity that was developing mythologies and shit like that while they're drinking their what's it called mead or whatever the fuck it is yeah like, fucking mead yeah man like this is a moral issue cuz this is it's right it's right. This is. I'm gonna go. Like we were talking about this the other day. Another round. Human beings were born with a what is it? 0.05 deficiency. 0.05 deficiency in alcoholic. Yeah. That's right. So I think that if you can, if you can maintain uh, a 0.05 buzz, you start to get up to a 0.08. You can do that. You can still work. Once you start to get to one, it's time to go dance. Okay. Uh, oh, well, well here, no, here's the thing, dude. We we, we got to qualify what work means here, because if you're talking about the most, and we were just talking about this before we were recording, actually, the most important and fundamental form of doing philosophy, which is the conversation. Yeah. Then absolutely, the 0.05 social lubricant that is the 0.05 <laughs> like alcohol right. level, right? That's that's that just elevates. I mean, read the symposium, right? Like that just elevates philosophical discourse into the heavens, yeah. right? I'm not going to claim it's necessary, but it's absolutely sufficient for getting to that place, right? 
Uh, and anyone who's ever engaged in philosophical conversation over beers knows that this is like the ideal form in which it takes. And, and that's the most important thing, right? But that's very different than like independent scholarly academic work, um, which is inferior in comparison as a form of philosophy than the conversation, right? But that's the form that I, I don't know that you can really do that well at 0.05. I mean, maybe you can. Maybe if you do it enough, it's just natural for you. But for me, I lose focus a bit at 0.05, right? Whereas with caffeine, um, you know, a modicum, like a, a you know, a moderate amount of it that in, like intensifies focus for a while. So that seems much more conducive to to like high standard, high level academic intellectual work, but not the not the 0.05 blood alcohol level. Maybe, like maybe you're different. I don't know. Yeah, like with everything, Troy, practice makes perfect, my friend. You, <laughs> you got to practice, okay? Uh, also, I will say this. This is just the last thing I'll say. I just find it sort of obscene that there's this rush to make, like, the most potent beer in the entire world that's that's uh, that's that's alcohol content is super fucking high. Like, fine cool so you can make you can make some sort of brew that has a 19 percent like i i have i have tried some beers that were like in the 30 to 40 percent right when i was in scotland um there's this brewery there called brew dog shouts to brew dog i love brew dog i'm not shitting on brew dog and what they do but they've got a couple of brews that are like 34 i think there's even one that's like 50 something percent it's called like the end of history or something like that they serve it in the carcass <laughs> of a squirrel they literally serve it in the carcass of a squirrel <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fucking crazy. Go Google it right now. I think it's called the end end of history. There's another one called uh, Sink the Bismarck that's like forty something percent, or maybe that was high thirties. So like like at that point, is it even a beer? The point there is that it's a novelty. That it's like they did it because they could do it, and that's fine. I I find that something interesting about that. But that's not the kind of beer consumption I'm talking about. So if you're just in an area and and the goal is to go out and do some beer tasting on some like twelve percent double IPAs or triple IPAs or whatever the fuck it is. Um, that's different. Like maybe you can have one and, and you can just have some fine, fun conversations, but I'm talking about, you got to be in like the three to 4%, maybe even do like low alcohol, like 2.5 to like 4%. In that range, you can get some solid work done, you know? I mean, you're basically drinking like Budweiser at that point, aren't you? <laughs> I guess some like Hefeweizens are that low, right? Yeah. And honestly, a lot of ales are lower alcohol content, like single ales, um, a lot, a lot of like, uh, like local British, British, um, Scottish local beers. Dukers was one of my favorite. And I think that's at like four something. So, uh, maybe five, but like, like they have low, lower alcohol beers. Like you got to like, I mean, that's why Guinness is good. Right. Cause it's like what, two, two point something percent or something like that. Um, yeah, so, heavy, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. It just depends, but man, I I love the bar atmosphere. I love I love bringing high culture into a place that in a place like the United States or Britain or even like Australia where it's like associated with debauchery. I like bringing in the high culture and sitting there and being like, yeah, people are in here to try to like indulge in their libidinal passions, but you know what? There's also fucking rationality and there's also meaning and there's also <laughs> politics and there's also like socioeconomic depth here and i want to bring there's poetry i want to bring that into a place that culture tries to suppress by creating these spaces where people just indulge in in what i would say is a sort of like real minimization of the totality of the pleasurable experience so i want to bring in 
these other forms of pleasure in with these uh, this kind of like reductive sense of what it means to have fun and be entertained and, and find pleasure. So I think that's really what it ultimately is. That's like the true philosophical point. You just want to be Paul at the uh, Acropolis, right? That's it, man. That's it. I just want to come in. I want to come into those territories, and I want to bring the good, and I want to preach the preach the gospel about there's a higher ethical way of being, and I want to live it. That's it. <laughs> All right, dude. Let's go ahead and wrap up your shitty minute there, and let's get into this main segment. Yeah, dude. Yeah, let's do it. All right, brother. Why don't you give us the lead in here? Uh, we already kind of give a little teaser at the top, but let's start this convo on this essay. Yeah. So. Um... Blanchfield starts the essay off talking about this story from a few years ago, which I remember when this happened, um, where a UPS driver was shot by cops. And the context was that they were chasing some some like bank robbers or jewel thieves or something like that. And they engaged in this high speed chase. This is very common in America, right? Over, you know, a non I guess I guess a, like a robbery is a violent crime. Right. But no one had been hurt or anything at this point. It was simply a, a robbery. And they engage in this high-speed chase and it's super dangerous. And then there's a shootout and um, a UPS driver gets shot. And it's unclear if it was by the cops or by the thieves. And I guess it's still up in like up in the air about um, there was a case uh, brought to like release the ballistics reports um, by the family of the UPS driver. And still that hasn't come out yet, which makes it sound kind of like there's some you know chicanery going on, mm. um, but the story is simply meant to illustrate the idea that the UPS, like I guess, tweeted out like a thank you to the cops, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, while also showing remorse over this driver employee who had been shot and, and killed in this like scenario, which shouldn't have happened in the first place. It's simply just an like a you know um, like a, a, a kind of outburst that just happens in America of violence that never needed to happen in the first place. Like we, you don't need to engage in this high speed chase of these people. Like you can just find them later when it doesn't endanger like all the citizens of the country. But and yet we just consider it to be normal because you engage in criminal behavior in a public way like this. And many people have to die, I guess, <laughs> as a side mm. effect. So there was no like outrage of the fact that an innocent person was killed, uh, given a lot of these stupid decisions, but it was more just like, well, thank the cops for, for engaging in the violence we all know needed to happen. Um, and this sort of necessity of, of this social outcome um, without any question as to whether it needed to happen or whether it's, you know, an action, just like a, a factor of public choice that we could reverse if we wanted to, if we had any sense of like rational decision-making at the public policy level is just skirted away. And that's, that's sort of an illustration for Blanchfield of um, the death drive and specifically like the comfortability with routine, normalized violence uh, and death and destruction that happens to people in American culture uh, that shouldn't, that clearly shouldn't be as as normalized as it is. And so that's the entry into this idea of thinking about what the death drive might be and how we can apply it uh, to social contexts, most principally being the response to um, now over 900,000 people, um, 900,000 Americans dead to COVID. So that's the starting point, thinking about the death drive. Did you want to talk at all about what the death drive is in the Freudian sense before getting into Blanchfield's kind of appropriation of it? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess I, I, I might even do both. Um, and just this, the, the thing that stands out most to me is when Blanchfield talks about that um, what the cops did 
And what UPS praised them for was restoring order, right? Or in other words, bringing things back to, quote, normal, unquote, right? Because commerce could flow once again, consumer goods could be exchanged because, you know, that truck, you know, was no longer disrupted. So uh, transportation means were no longer um, in threat of interruption. And also there's this sense in which the violence could serve as a warning to future. It's a form of um, punishment in the Foucauldian sense, a sort of public display of punishment that says, if you do bad, if you stop the flow of commerce, um, uh, we will restore order through violence. Uh, bystanders be damned. You know, it doesn't matter the, the, the cost, the, the cost of lives. Um, so there's something about this restoration of order and the costs that come with that that I think are really interesting that relate to, one, the Freudian death drive, and then ultimately to what Blanchfield's point was about how the United States and a lot of other cultures are dealing with this COVID pandemic in their rush to go back to order. I've been, I've been hearing a lot about the calls for um, the endemicity that uh, of uh, that COVID is now endemic, that it's no longer, it should be downgraded from the level of being a pandemic, but now it should be categorized as endemic, as something that within a given region um, does not run out of chaos or does not exist outside the bounds of kind of um, expected behaviors. And so there are all these calls for the endemicity of COVID, which you see in these, these new policy proposals for eliminating mask mandates and even isolation isolation mandates um, once somebody is infected in this call to say that we're just going to be living with COVID now, despite the scientific community um, and epidemiologists and things like that coming out and saying, hold on, one, you're using the word endemic wrong, and two, we shouldn't rush to this yet because this isn't simply just um, something that we can we can play fast and loose with here because people's lives are at stake, right? Um, but this is all, again, in the name of commerce, of getting things back to normal, of getting people um, back to work. Not that getting people to work so they can earn a wage for subsistence is bad, but the cynical uh, perspective of the politicians and of big business is get people back to work so that their profit flows aren't destroyed, so that their powers over the democratic operations aren't minimized. Um, and that's really what the issue is. And then, of course, we're fed this as like, oh, no, don't worry, guys, we care about you because we're going to get you back to work so you can make your money again. And then things will be back to normal. Order will be restored. And there's something about this in Freud that is so important because it has to do with this idea of... If the pleasure principle for Freud is the sort of um, impelling, maybe even compulsive need to um, like vitally uh, seek its own uh, subsistence or gain, you know, um, we could think of it in terms of maybe like Conatus with Spinoza. There's been some work with that, um, that there's, you know, seeking pleasure in the form of eating and um, uh, like copulation or in going out and in, in experiencing art that you might enjoy. The pleasure principle um, was kind of elaborated in that sense, whereas the death drive for Freud is sort of the obverse of that, but related to it and always maybe even present within those those tendencies as well, which is that there seems to be something else, a sort of desire for cessation. Um, this desire for maybe we could call it like a, a kind of peace in the kind of strongest sense of that word, where there is no more compulsion to seek 
pleasure, but that rather there's this eradication of the very vital impulse that that um, that that characterizes Western humanity. And I think that's that's uh, I think a really interesting way of thinking about this is because the desire to return to normal then is this sort of like uh, emergence, this powerful emergence that, that can't be ignored of the death drive that is being um, used and politicized almost in the forms of let's get things back to that that um, that that place of of order or normalcy as it's so determined by these these political and, and corporate entities. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you wanted to say about Freud and, and the death drive? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about just for a second, if you wanted to, was, so now that I'm thinking about it, it strikes me that the UPS driver example is actually importantly kind of orthogonal to the death drive example or the, as an illustration of the death drive in that, I mean, I think that the Foucauldian way of reading the UPS situation is much better um, the one you were just talking about in the sense of like, if re- if simply restoring order so that normalcy could take over and, and typical economic, you know, transactions um, could occur without interruption, then actually doing the more rational thing, or we would think more rational thing and like not engaging in this high speed car chase that ends with bullets flying would be better, right? Because <laughs> lots of shit got interrupted. By that yeah. happening, it should just be like a bunch of dudes at a black site, like you know, kidnap these guys uh, when they're least expecting it, like follow them via like hidden cameras and shit like that, or a helicopter or a drone or something, right? Where no one has to actually know this is happening, and then you you know, nineteen eighty four style, just whisk, whisk them off to a black site and torture them, right, until you find out everything you need to know. Like that's the shit, um, like the you know, black ops shit that you would expect if it was simply about restoring order and normalcy. And then you could sort of control people in the background with like the rumors of, oh, that guy just got whisked away. We never saw him again. Um, But like the the public, like publicity in the sense of like publicness of the violence is very different than that. It's it's, it's playing a different role, which is the Foucauldian Mm. role. It's like a, um, there's like a public punishment. Yes. Like the public has to be punished because you did this. It's collective punishment. Um, well, also punishment well, of the of the individuals too, right? Who are engaging in the criminal act, but also as a public punishment. Like everyone has to kind of suffer and also kind of enjoy it because yeah. you're enjoying the kind of um, spectacle of this event too. So there's a kind of like combination and, enjoyment and, of the spectacle and punishment of the public because you know you could be the person who just happens to get shot walking down the street uh, because this public uh, violent spectacle has to take place, right? So that that's a much more that's a, I think a different thing than this death drive type returning to normalcy thing that's happening um, in COVID. There's a kind of like, and I think Blanchfield's right to point out how trauma plays a really important role in this, right? Because it seems like like trauma has to sort of take hold of the psyche in a certain way for this desire for normalcy to really take hold in this uniquely irrational way that it does in the death drive, right? And it becomes mm-hmm. rational, I think, in an important way. Not like optimally rational, but rational in the basic sense of like four reasons. Um, once trauma has taken hold, right? And so really the fact that we've been living through the COVID stuff for, you know, two years now coming up is really speaks to the um, the strength of this return to normalcy discourse that's happening. It's, it's based upon just being utterly fatigued 
by the, all the trauma that we've, the social trauma <laughs> we've all experienced by having gone through this and just seeing people die and, and not much being done about it and having an election taking place and it was supposed to solve all the problems and it clearly didn't. Um, so yeah, I, I, we don't need to, to, to spend too much time on the UPS thing unless you want to, but I think that maybe that wasn't the greatest example thinking about it in retrospect now. Yeah, it's interesting. I I also want to kind of problematize Blanchfield's argument a bit further in a couple other ways. Um, I think it's also really important that the spectacle isn't just something that we enjoy for like um, macabre reasons, but we also enjoy it because we enjoy the fact that the state stepped in and did their job, right? They did. Yeah, they, showing its power. Yeah. Yep. They gave us they gave us security. Cool. Um, we can go about and we can feel safe that we're being held by the great father figure. Right. And the Leviathan. Very, yeah. The Hobbesian Leviathan. Exactly. And I think that's this is really, what happens when you don't play your part. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and then this is why so many people, you know, will praise the police for their service or the military for their service, because they're different forms of policing activities that that really tend towards buttressing the power of the state to provide this illusion of security. And and I don't want to say illusion in the sense that, oh, they're, they're not really actually eliminating something that is a perceived enemy, but it's illusionary because the enemy is fabricated. It's almost, um, it's almost um, interpolative, right? Like the enemy is turned into the enemy by the state telling it to stop or chasing after it and then it becomes the enemy in that activity and then it's fed and packaged to us like see we stopped this enemy as though it was always already out there threatening you and harming you with some sort of imminent threat rather than being like actually the ways that it's a threat are contingent and constructed in this relationality between state policing forces and these agents, right? And so there's something there that I think is important. And then I do think that that I, I do think we can think about the death drive because I tend to think about the death drive in terms of this. I, I tend to think of Freud as a profoundly capitalist thinker. He's thinking about malaise under a certain stage of capitalism, right? So the neurotic symptoms that he's examining, the pathologies he's experiencing, his analyses of wish fulfillment and things like that, I, I, I always see them within the context of the hegemonic logic of capital. And so for me, the pleasure principle isn't in, I think in the best articulation of it isn't as some sort of essential characteristic of the human like it would be in Spinoza, like Conatus, right? Um, but it's much more particular to the manufacture of desire, right? And maybe this is where I'm Lacanian um, a little bit more than just purely Freudian, but it's the idea that the pleasure principle is itself manufactured by these structures, the symbolic order of society that um, create the conditions in which that pleasure can even seek attachments in the first place. So if I desire 
uh, a new car. It's only in my relation with the branding and with the like cool aspects of the car and with the um, histories of masculinity that make me want like a muscle car and in, you know, the experiences that I had with my friends that had cool cars and then in fucking seeing Matthew McConaughey and his cool voice behind the the, back, the, the, the steering wheel of a Lincoln and being like, <laughs> oh shit, I want to be cool. Like, you know, it's those things. And, that, and how in, in, every, in every one of those Lincoln commercials, Matthew McConaughey is clearly going to an orgy. <laughs> like, it's, like it's 10 o'clock at night, right? Yeah. It's definitely too late for dinner. And he, he's, and going he's, to, yeah, he's, he's going to a happening. <laughs> <laughs> Just watch one of those commercials on YouTube. Oh it's pretty God. clear where he's going, right? <laughs> Which is so fucking libidinal, right? And we look at that and we're like, oh my God, I want to be this sexy man in this car with his freedom and his power. And the steering wheel is like his cock that he's driving down the road. And he's just like, I'm in control of my cock. Do you want to be in control of your cock? If you want to be in control of your cock, buy a Lincoln. And then I'm I'm like, oh shit, I want a Lincoln, right? So for me, there's this <laughs> there's this libidinal energy that is always there that describes the pleasure, the seeking of pleasure under capitalism that is related to like the manufacture of consumer desire, right? And so then the death drive is the desire for all of that desire to stop, right? It's too fucking much. I, I can't desire as much as the system wants me to desire. So I'm going to fucking be self-destructive, right? I'm going to um, – we just watched Little Miss Sunshine the other day on Show Me the Meaning. And like the pleasure principle is the dad who's like, you know, you're a winner and you got to do all these things and here's the nine steps. And the pleasure principle is the daughter who wants to be in the beauty pageant. The death drive is the Nietzschean son played by Paul Dano who's like, you know what? All of history is a fucking – all of this is all one beauty pageant after another. Fuck the beauty pageant system. Let's get her out of here. And what they do is they throw a bomb into the beauty pageant by kind of doing this dance and saying fuck you to the beauty pageant. Now, that's kind of like a saccharine version of it. But the idea is, is that the death drive is that moment of kind of like saying, no, we, we want to pull the handbrakes of history, of the flows of pleasure that are being forced to us and fed to us by a capitalist system that produces desire in particular ways, right? And it manifests itself in all kinds of ways, um, sometimes in the actual pursuit of deadly activities, Right. Even so far as to say like like suicidal ideation or in things like smoking or ingesting poisonous substances, drinking has some sort of element to death drive. But but and I'm sorry, this is kind of long winded. This is where I want to problematize Blanchfield's essay. I got the sense that he sort of set up a binary with regards to covid between the government pursuing handouts that would prop people up. And then the desire to return to normal is the elimination of those things and that it was the latter that was a symptom or an expression, let's say, of the death drive. Whereas I think also the government handouts and government intervention can't be understood apart from it operating under the socioeconomic system of this system that is producing desire for desiring production's sake that also itself has an element of death drive in it in that the promise of the commodity consumption is that you will achieve contentment. So it's the promise of the fulfillment of that death drive via the exacerbation of pleasure seeking through a desiring production system that characterizes those government activities 
as well. So, so I think that we can't make the binary that he does. I think we need to speak, and maybe, maybe he was, he would, he would suggest that as well. He's, he's a pretty astute thinker. Um, but in this essay, I kind of got a little bit too much of a binary, and I don't think that the desire to return to normal is the desire of the death drive, whereas uh, the other way wasn't. I think it's all just various manifestations of how the death drive pops up, let's say. Yeah, and I think maybe this wasn't explicit in the essay, but I think it was at least implied that, you know, sometimes maybe the the, the death drive can, can like, bring us back or drive us towards a sense of normalcy that would be that would be kind of comforting right um but of course the 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 point of um analysis of the death drive is that it's always a normal that never really existed in the first place and so <laughs> yeah, right. to reach it to reach it would be a kind of destruction and it would also be a, a, a kind of like shocking tragedy because you because you it won't actually be as you fantasized it to be so even no. with the like keynesian economic metaphors of smoothing right and balancing the the cyclical nature of um, the economy and stuff like that where we're going to send these uh in like the ideal keynesian or you know like uh, mmt world we're going to send out these um stimulus payments automatically based upon a trigger whenever that there's um a dearth in like aggregate demand or whatever right that's like the ideal scenario there's a kind of i mean certainly there's a logic to that right but there's also a kind of like we're going to make sure that the that um, that commerce flows in this uninterrupted way, and there's nothing wrong with that in, in like a pure economic sense because it's trying to stop like these the negative part of these cycles where people end up suffering right for because of like um, whatever that uh, liquidity trap um, thing is like the Krugmans and I'll talk about where everyone stops everyone starts saving and everyone stops spending and that ends up having negative repercussions for everybody especially on the lower end of the income scale. Um, and that obviously has a logic to it, which I'm not, I'm not going to deny. But there is a certain sense of like at, at the grand – as a form of like social design, it's trying to smooth um, like the consumerist cycle so that everyone can continue to do things quote-unquote as normal, right? Which is v- very much seems like it's, it correlates to this uh, death drive idea at the social level. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely see that. Yeah, um, I, I just found a couple of little quotes too because I was thinking a lot when you were talking about this as like maybe the relationship between death drive and the real in Lacan. It's like if you actually achieved full contentment, that would be like the cessation of of life, right? Um, mm. This is something that like in Tantra and Neo Tantra and in Zen and Zen Buddhism and stuff like that they discuss a lot that um, a lot of times the the quote masculine or um you know uh, like if you're going to buy into these like uh sexual polarities um just for the sake of abstraction let's just buy into them for a second even though um we're going to obviously admit that they're that they're fully contingent but sometimes it's it's argued that like the masculine is is characterized by a desire for just ultimate peace right which is why you oftentimes see a lot of these masculine-derived, culturally determined masculine-derived religions being concerned with, like, death or the cessation of of ev- the everyday, right? Like, with Zen Buddhism, it's about, like, fucking the total elimination of desire into, like, nothingness. And in, um, in a lot of, uh, like, uh, like, old mystic meditative... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like really like austere forms of, of like monastic 
pursuits. It was all about like elimination and separation of getting away from anything that might pull us in different directions and just have stillness of consciousness, right? Just absolute cessation of the busy mind or the cessation of the impulses of of pleasure in sensation, right? And it's about like eliminating that. And you even get this with like Christianity and the monotheistic religions as well with both Judaism and Islam too, where like, um, like, there's there's tendencies within them to like sort of like escape this world in all of its busyness and then we'll get to a place where everything is fine right now there's maybe some confusion because some of them like they still talk about how like in the afterlife you'll still have this perfect set of relationships but without tension so it's like you'll have humanity without humanity you know so (laughs) there's like a rejection of the human in a lot of these a lot of these kind of religious tendencies which is oftentimes associated with certain um, like dude forms of religious expression, whereas a lot of like more feminine religions or even cultures that were matriarchal, there's more of like a fecundity, right? That that kind of accompanies them rather than like a cessation, right? And so there's something interesting here, I think, as well is, is um, yeah, yeah. So I, there's something about like eliminating and, and, and seeking for, like the real that oftentimes accompanies these desires that I think can become pathologized. And here's a quote from, from Lacan in um, seminar from 5455 talking about the death drive basically says that it is the fundamental tendency of the symbolic order to produce repetition. And he says the death instinct is only the mask of the symbolic order. So there's something about it. Um, there's something about it masking, if you will, the uh, the system of desiring production that they sort of work oppositionally, maybe dialectically is, is a better term, with one another uh, towards different ends to, that, that produce different effects within culture, society, uh, bodies that are constituted within um, those kind of like structural systems. So I don't know. My mind's kind of just thinking about that as well as, as something kind of like an interesting way to, to understand this, this death drive thing. Yeah. So I, I want to get to that latter point about the symbolic order in a second, but you know, the first point about sort of escaping, escaping the self to a, a stillness of consciousness that in, in a lot of kind of philosophical Buddhism is, is a sort of no consciousness, right? It's like a yeah. lack of, of consciousness. Um, and I'm not going to paint a broad brush and say all, you know, philosophical Buddhism or even Buddhism generals like this, but I think there's certainly a huge strain of it. It's very similar to like sort of Western empiricism's understanding of consciousness and of desire and of pleasure. And I think this kind of bleeds into a lot of uh, what I don't like about Freud and that I do kind of appreciate about how Blanchfield's repurposing some of these ideas. And I'll get to that in a second. But it's his understanding of, of desire and of pleasure as being like this lack and then completion, right? And then even when you when you sort of uh, overturn that and, and see um, pleasure as not really even being a completion, that's like a false sense of it, you're still sort of taking that structure of understanding and then like making it a fantasy. Um, uh, and like, the, like the, the, the way that the subject conceives of it, even if that's false, right? 
And that's, I think there's a certain sense in which it's important that, and I, I agree with you that, that Freud's a, a theorist of, of, of the subject under capitalism, right? Because capitalism following empiricism and utilitarianism as like, you know, the, the triumvirate mm. of like ideology does try to foster that notion of how desire works because it's manageable, right? It's a way that you can manage individuals fairly easy under a social understanding. Um, it's just, it just happens to be completely wrong, right? And so we don't have to go on this tangent, but like I would much rather see pleasure as uh, and desire as being in this nexus of like activity rather than as a state of, of consciousness. And states of consciousness are involved in activities, right? Certainly, but they're they're not the, the fundamental way you understand the phenomenon of, of pleasure and of, and of desire. For me, it's much more um, in the sense of like pleasure is, is itself an activity and it's constituent of, of activities of conscious beings. Um, and I think we can kind of move away from this notion of, of pleasure as being like a, a thing that gets like that, that appears when you've completed an mm-hmm. activity as its reward or something like that, which is the empiricist way of understanding pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of our problems go away when we conceive of it that way. And then we have a whole new rich way of understanding how activities work because, because activities are incredibly complex. Um, and they involve conscious states, but they're so much bigger than that because they involve the environment and the people and and their conscious states and everything else. So I don't think it makes this simpler at all. I think it makes it much more complex. Um, but then some of the, the issues with understanding desire as lack and then um, pleasure as completion kind of go away. But that said, hmm. um, I, I did want to talk a bit about this, and, I, and I'm glad you brought it up, the, the death drive as... Um, as being kind of a response in a certain way to the subject under capitalism who has been traumatized in mm. some way, right? And that's the way Blanchfield's kind of conceiving it. And what I liked about that was for me, it kind of brought about this paradox about the death drive, um, which the paradox of the death drive is is well known, right? The paradox at the, in the Freudian sense is like, how can a being driven by the pleasure principle also want to destroy itself, which means no more pleasure, <laughs> Yeah. Right. That's the, supposed to be the paradox. And that's, I think, a bad way of thinking about it. Um, because I, the idea of the pleasure principle as being like the everything else is reduced to it in forms of explanation of, of action and behavior is just that's just empiricist bullshit and it's wrong and you don't need to go down that road. Right. Um, but the real paradox for me, and the Blanchard I think gets at this, is that the death drive, because it's this response to the subject's trauma specifically under capitalism. It could reappear in other social systems too, but we're talking here about under capitalism. Um, means it has a kind of rational side while also obviously mm. being irrational in an important way, right? So like the way Blanchfield conceived it, he doesn't use these terms, so I think this is what he's getting at kind of, is like um, the death drive is rational because it's always a meaningful response to the state of the world in some sense, Right. There's one point where um, in the essay he says, like, uh, these acts, these death drive acts are never only about self-destruction, but are also relational symptoms and sometimes even communications. Like, communications are meaningful, rational, intentional utterances, right? And we know through speech act theory, those can come in the form of actions, not just in the form of words, right? right? So these death drive acts, and he lists a bunch of them. Um, He talks about, like, 
destroying your career because in some sense, unconsciously, you know, your career is meaningless. It doesn't contribute Mm. anything to the social squandering your inheritance because you know that getting a bunch of money because your family did some shit is stupid and like, isn't right. (laughs) Um, and I was thinking, reading, reading this, like, and we've talked about this a bunch in the podcast, David Foster Wallace's kind of infamous account of suicide, which is to conceive of it as a rational action, specifically akin to jumping out of a burning building. Like, why would someone jump out of a burning building guaranteeing them their destruction? Because you're going to die, right? Mm. Well, the only reason you would do that is because the only worse thing than jumping to your death is being burned alive, Right. And so you are, in a sense, making a rational choice between fates at that point. And so he uses that that metaphor to say suicide is like that. The pain of continuing to exist is so great, it's akin to being burned alive. And so death is a, is a release. It's an escape from that. And that really sets in stone the mental state of a person who commits suicide, right? And it's not this irrational action uh, that just overtakes somebody, Right. Where there's there's no sort of intention or meaning behind it. No, you can really understand, uh, maybe not from like a first person point of view, what someone would have to feel like to be in that state. I certainly never felt that way. But I can kind of in some way understand that they that they had they had reasons, whether I agree with them or not. It's a different story. But they had reasons that I can try to understand and try to empathize with. Right. And so the death drive is sort of rational in that sense of being meaningful. It doesn't mean it's good, right? It doesn't mean any of these things are good um, or right. But they are meaningful kind of communications in a way or understandings of the world. And that's opposed to this irrational side of the death drive, which is um, later in the essay, uh, Blanchfield says, the real opposite of both love and hate is in fact something else altogether. It's indifference, Right. Mm. And here lies the true horror of the death drive. It's an indifferent principle of destruction, insensate, mm. unsatisfiable. It may well pulse within you and undo you, but it does not care about you. And that's sort of the, the irrational side of the death drive, right? It feels like it's something that kind of overcomes us in a traumatic state because trauma is like this, it's like part of you that's against you, Right. And so that's that's kind of fundamentally irrational because it's going against your intentions and against your sense of of uh, what the good is in the world. And and this is and because that, it's think, it's non egoic, right? So it it doesn't it isn't characterized simply by um, the desires of the self as constituted by society. It is excessive of that, and that's where the indifference comes from, right? Um, and that's why it is irrational insofar as it doesn't accord with the rationality of the egoic self and its place within the symbolic order. Yeah, exactly. And that seems to me like – and the, the word tragedy is used a lot in this essay, which I appreciate because that paradox of the death drive as being both rational and irrational in important ways – just gets to the idea of sort of the the inherent tragedy of individuals who have intentions and who produce meanings and who communicate with other people are also products of the social, right? Our desires are mm. fundamentally products of the social in important ways you were talking about earlier, right? You love that you want the Lincoln car because you want to go to the orgy like Matthew McConaughey does, right? <laughs> and that's yeah. 
you can you can you can know that you can even know that's the case it doesn't change your desire right mm, <laughs> your, yeah. your desire is such a product of so much a product of the social and out of your control that you can even know that it's the case it doesn't really change it um and so we have and that's again that tragedy is right there right that that kind of uh tension where you are this individual subject and you do produce meanings and you can reflect upon them and you can change them and you can try and um make them better or whatever and improve but also you're a product of the social and you're kind of um, not a puppet, but you're kind of like moved about by the social in, in ways that you can't control. And that's that's kind of fundamentally tragic in a, in a way, or can, it can lead to um, fundamental tragedies in this sense of like, you might find yourself in a state where the thing you think is most rational or most worth doing is destruction of yourself. <laughs> that's like fucking awful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking as you've been talking here, I keep getting this sense in which the death drive is a type of animating principle. And I don't think it's oftentimes thought of in those terms. Um, but there's something about it as having this animated sense. But it's a it's a different type of animation than the pleasure principle, which is what we typically think of as like desire. And I was really struck by your critique of empiricism. And it made me think a little bit of the sort of like predominance of, of cybernetic conceptions of the human as being like uh, primarily about stimuli and response and stimuli and response, right? Which makes mm -hmm. like the human body this kind of like thing that is purely passive that only responds to and this is where a lot of like uh the utilitarian uh theories and economics that sort of dominate how how um uh neoclassical uh economics understands um human agents that then this really ties into like like um the rational choice theory as well that like humans are yep. in, innately like they have a rational sense of what they want and then in achieving that by getting it or not to varying degrees, it has a rebounding effect on them in terms of pleasure or displeasure and that they're constantly just modulating themselves in relationship to that pursuit of this stimuli and response with some sort of external thing. But this is why I fundamentally disagree with this entire approach. It's just bad metaphysics. Like really, yeah, really, exactly. <laughs> real, like, like I'm going to keep saying really, 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 really fucking bad <laughs> metaphysics. And, and, and I don't understand why people just buy this shit, even though with one hand, they'll be like, yes, but these models of rational choice theory and efficiency market hypothesis and stuff like that are just models. Da, 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 da. On the other hand, they literally build fucking entire models and economies based off of this. Like, yeah. it's, it's not just a helpful heuristic, like literally <laughs> decisions about the fate of the world are made on these fucking things. Like with climate yeah, change. It, yeah, yeah. Like economist Robert Skidelsky talks about in his book on Keynes, he talks about how like they were always meant to be normative, you know, as like something to aspire to. But that's not how they end up being in in uh, in, in real life. They also are like actual um, articulations of reality as like supposedly objective ways of being in the world. And it's it's like it's one way to be like, hey, it would be cool if everybody had a, a, like absolute knowledge of the market and of their options on the market like like that's one thing which itself you know it's spurious and we could we could identify some problems with that as well but that's a different argument than how it's typically manifested and 
I just find it to be just, yeah, just really bad. And I, and I love how you continually bring us back to what are the three again? It's empiricism, utilitarianism, and capitalism. Yeah. And capitalism. Yeah. I love that. Someone should write a book on that. Troy. Um, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I should write a book on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should write a book on the, that. The problem but is all the good books are about that already. They just don't synthesize it in such an easy to digest <laughs> formula, but they should, right? They should. There should be like a real sort of like, like uh, the, the 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 kind of like triumvirate evils of capitalism is the title of, of the book. And it's just, these are the three and this is how and why and in what ways. I think that's a great fucking book. Um Anyway, in the future. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the point here is just like, look, the problem with that heuristic for trying to understand the way the social works and how individuals within it make their decisions using something like rational choice theory, decision theory matrices and, matrices and stuff like that, is clearly whatever the death drive is, these, these instantiations of it that we see all around us and that clearly become sort of like almost endemic to use that term in a metaphorical sense hmm. in times of a crisis as they are right now, right? Uh, within individuals, it's clearly a kind of crisis that's happening of meaning for people, right? We've been kind of socially traumatized in ways hmm. and people are acting in certain ways that only make sense if you understand it as a response to what kind of social trauma that's happened for the past two plus years, and all of that way of analyzing the situation at the level of the social gets lost when you try and reduce it to these individual behaviors based upon imperfect information with a decision matrix based on rational choice theory or whatever, right? And that's painting a very broad brush of a hugely complex set of literature. And I know anybody who's into that stuff is going to be like, what the fuck? Wait a minute. You know, I apologize. Like, I'm sorry, not sorry. But generally speaking, it's like a broad brush, Right. That's that stuff gets lost and you you have to be able to analyze this stuff. And that means using tools, uh, conceptual tools that are just not open to the level of quantification and analysis that I guess everyone else fetishizes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, um, that's what it kind of comes down to is, is people want to have shit they can measure with numbers. And Blanchfield's essay here doesn't. It is incredibly illuminative, I think, about our situation without making anything more simple and quantifiable, <laughs> right? In mm. fact, it just opens up so many more ways of analyzing the situation. It, it, it makes it complicated. It makes it more complicated um, than it was before you were reading it. And to me, that's – and I think you would agree. That's like – that's what it, that's what analysis should be of a super complicated social phenomenon yeah. like we're experiencing with response to COVID. Like it's fucking complicated – and if your analysis that happens in a thousand words doesn't further complicate it, you're probably you're probably not actually helping. You're probably just oversimplifying and being a little bit naive in understanding the situation. Hmm. Yeah, and, and but I, I guess think, you can't make public policy based upon that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that that that's the thing that's interesting is this makes me then angry at the world system that we have built up because it seems to be one that has mechanisms built in that will always be pathological. Um, and so this is what, this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll give you the final word is that it makes me think that there's kind of, um, at least, you know, maybe, maybe two abstract ways that we can think about the death drive in terms of its 
being productive as an animating force. And then also what I would call like the weaponization of it in the hands of state media. And I'm going to say even maybe propaganda, right? So the, the, the speech acts of return to normalcy, getting us back to are very similar. Remember George Bush said this right after 9-11. You had this encounter. Go with shopping. The other. Yeah, go back <laughs> and go shopping. And then there was even like the rebranding of French fries to Freedom Fries to like like this is all the state's corny, corny, corny efforts to get us to just, quote, go back to normal, which is, I think, a sort of propagandistic, bad art form of of using human imagination and thought and desire and it's using the death drive which is something that appeals to us as capitalist subjects in a way that weaponizes it to um to unproductive or let's say only productive for capitals terms whereas the positive spin of what the de death drive can be is what I would say in um, artistic expression that breaks the bounds of normalcy and that 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 seeks to appeal to that irrationality. If the rational cry is kind of like the heart in a heartless world that Marx talks about with religion, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, if there's something yeah. about like the working class that is dissatisfied in its recognition of itself as the exploited um, expression of capital, that's that's like that's similar to what Marx is talking about with what religion does as serving as a sort of like heart in a heartless world. It's this cry of the oppressed. Right. Um, Fanon yeah, talks about yeah. the Fanon talks about the unconscious rage of the colonized in the wretched of the earth that at some point just fucking bursts out. And in that bursting out, there's an irrationality. And I would say an irrationality that we might be able to say is at least partly related to a productive animating aspect of the death drive that one has its rational critique of, oh, fuck that system. Um, and, but that then two is kind of like, oh, those desires, I don't want those. We want peace. We want equality. We want justice. And I think that from that animating sense, whether or not without giving like a normative or value ascription to it, there's something interesting to at least recognize its productive forms rather than its weaponized um, I would say reproductive and unproductive and, and maybe stifling forms under like the, the, the capitalist state um, matrix propagandistic weaponization of it. Yeah, that's really good, dude. I haven't thought about it that way, but that that analogy with the heart of the heartless world and the world religion plays for Marx was really helpful, especially when you have the 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 sort of more complicated version of it. Um, than usually is ascribed to Marx and having this like epiphenomenal account of a like from G from G. A. Cohen's elaboration of it that we talked about in in his book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And that makes me think, you know, like and I think you're right to say it, it's kind of pre, it's kind of pre prescriptive. Like it, it's 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 a phenomenon we're trying to investigate, and it's not inherently good or bad um, at the first at the first instance. And we have to just kind of think about it first as a phenomenon, and then think about how to best utilize it. And yeah, it's, it's it's great to analogize it with like revolution. Like revolution is a kind of death drive of the social um, that becomes contagious in certain spheres. And that's why revolutions oftentimes, probably most times, are terrible for everybody, right? <laughs> uh, especially in the immediate in the immediate sphere. Like they're, yeah. they don't produce a better world immediately. Almost never, right? Um, 
And so there's a very high bar for when a revolution becomes justifiable. A revolution in the sense of like, you know, literally upending and destroying the entire society uh, at the fundamental level. Um, and so it's really good to, to think about death drive as, as being like that because you can, you can think of the kind of freedom and potential of it. And that's, I think, even at an interpersonal level, like someone who does something self-destructive, like um, destroys their career because, you know, unconsciously they know that it's meaningless or, um, you know, squanders their inheritance because it, it's not really um, uh, like properly gotten or whatever, or some, you know, family um, like uh, entity that exists there. There's a kind of freedom in that, even though it's obviously like a terrible thing that's happened. It's a kind of, like in the sense of like Lacan's sense of like a subjective destitution, right? Like you unwind um, the role you play in the symbolic or however Lacan puts it. And, and like it produces that kind of freedom because you are able to acknowledge um, and recognize your place in that system and then have the freedom now to be able to kind of replace yourself, which you didn't have before you were able to, to think of, to kind of objectively step out and see yourself in that way. And a lot of our movies are kind of like that, right? Like some kind of tragedy happens, whether it's big or small, and now you have a new kind of insight into your place in the world and a new kind of freedom to recreate. Like lots of literature and, and film and stuff is about that, being at that point in life. And so even though it recognizes this tragedy, that becomes a space for freedom. It doesn't mean you're going to engage in it. You might engage in more self-destruction and create this cycle of like terrible tragedies happening. And that can certainly happen. Um, like an addiction can, can be kind of like that, right? Um, mm. but it can open a space for freedom and that's, that's important to recognize. And probably if you're like with somebody or even experiencing yourself, that kind of, uh, instantiation of the death drive, it, it's best probably to think about it that way as this new space for self-creation and for other creation. We've talked to someone that you care about, um, and the same way that revolutionary potential can be like that. It's a new space for the commons to come together and actually think about how should our society look. And we were talking about this back in 2020, right? Mm. Yeah, this is awful, but it, it does open up a space for freedom. And the Bernie movement was happening at the same time. And so we were talking about like, hey, man, he's leading the polls. Like he might win this thing. And a lot of it seems to be because he's talking about, he's using this as a moment to talk about how we can restructure society to be better. Like now Medicare for all sounds more important than it ever has. Because everybody depends upon being healthy enough to do what you do in life. And we were talking about that. It was a space for freedom. Now, of course, we squandered that and fucked it over and threw it down into the garbage, right? Uh, but that space was there, and we were kind of talking about it. Um, yeah, that made mm. me kind of depressed, but... <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and the, the, I guess I lied. The, the last thing I'll say is because you brought it up is, yeah, like in one sense, revolutionary projects are destructive and saying fuck you to society. You see this on on Twitter all the time. You get these like blue check conservative types. They're like, they're like, you fucking, these people are just trying to destroy society. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are. You know, you get someone like Jordan Peterson that's like, um, oh, at the decline of every sort of uh, civilization that's ever existed, you get people that get obsessed with gender. And it's like, yeah, that's because eventually what's happening is that people are like, oh, fuck the restrictions of this empire. 
like and all of its ideological hegemonic controls that it's trying to impose upon us. And it might take 50 years and it might take a thousand years. But at some point, yeah, that's people rebelling against the repressive state apparatus. Right. Um, so there is a sense in which that's the case. But that doesn't mean that the capitalist system, the status quo, is somehow not always already itself a form of destruction, right? So I think I think the idea is is that both of them are always already in a flow of relationality and teasing apart those relations through what might be called like um, internal relations, like a critique of internal relations rather than external relations is extremely important. And this is why empiricism cannot see this because it is um, constitutively predisposed towards seeing things in terms of external relations rather than seeing things mm -hmm. always already in a relational term or uh, in relational terms. And so, yeah, that's just something I was uh, I was kind of thinking about. But yeah, that's my last that's my last thoughts on this. But yeah, yeah, and there's so much more to say about this stuff, but uh, maybe we'll open that up to to people in the social media sphere. What do you think about Death Drive? Yeah, yeah, let us know. Have a read of the essay. Um, like I said, we'll have the link down below. We'll tweet it out. Um, hit us up, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Um, you can hit us up on Insta as well, same, and uh, and let us know your thoughts. But yeah, yeah, so we're done with this essay, but we're not done with the episode, bro. No, dude, we got to go to the sticky leaves. That is the part of the podcast where one of us talks about whatever it is that's granting us meaning in the midst of this never-ending social trauma that we're all <laughs> being subject to. So, Austin, <laughs> what's possibly providing you some meaning this week? All right. So I'm going to do two things because if you're able to bend the rules in your shitty minute, then fuck it. I'm going to bend the rules <laughs> in my sticky leaves. Uh, the first thing I'm going to say is, and I'm not going to say much about it because I think we're going to do an episode on this in the future, but Troy's Sticky Leaves oh. a few episodes ago was about the book Station Eleven, and I want to recommend the series Station Eleven. Um, if you are a fan of like slow musings, but with like every once in a while, like peaks of kind of outbursts, but... Um, positive and artistic and kind of eerie and surreal and weird and i mean that in like the fucking philosophical sense of weird but also in like the not philosophical sense but just that it's kind of like fucking weird like lori <laughs> petty's glasses are fucking weird and i love them everyone's outfits they all look like fucking <laughs> i didn't realize that in a post-apocalyptic world everyone would dress like hipsters um but yeah that's it's I, lo great. I love how the clothes are mismatched it's so great <laughs> it's so great um I just want to recommend Station Eleven. It's one of the most uplifting series I've ever seen. Life-affirming. It made me want to just tell story. Um, it made me want to... It, it, I think the, the thing that it gave to me was more of like... A, my, my partner and I were talking about this as we would like go for walks. It wasn't even so much like the scenes and the characters, sure. But it was like this mood and this tone... It made me feel something. It made me want it like mode. It like it, it like shot a spark of life in me that was this animating principle um, that made me want to create things with people that I care about. And it, it it kind of it wasn't like it made me think, oh, there's hope for the world. It was almost like let's create other worlds. And I think that's the best of what human imagination can do in the form of storytelling. I think that's what it, I think that's really what it ultimately is doing all the time anyway. 
it's just oftentimes shrouded in the illusions of like the commodifications that, that distill it and abstract it away and and reduce it to easily digestible things for um, you know little economic actors that they're trying to turn us into all the time um, or that we are that we are kind of subjected to all the time um, and so this this for me it really kind of had this like excessiveness about it and I just I fucking love it so I just want to recommend that um, but we don't want to talk too much about it because I think are we going to do a full episode on it bro yeah I mean I'm six episodes in uh, and I already have so much to say, but once I finish it and probably, I think by next week I'll have it finished so we can talk about it next week. Oh, cool. Let's, you know what, then let's, let's put this on the docket next week. We'll do it. Um, and so then, so then I won't say too much more. Just, I just want to recommend people. If you haven't started watching it, please start. If you're already in it, just fucking continue. If you started it and you stopped because you thought it was a little slow. I've heard a couple people say that, um, just like the leftovers, just, just trust me, just if it's a little slow, just get through it. Um, I think there's a lot there. Um, and then the last thing I want to say is what was giving me meaning this week is I basically just rebuilt uh, this little office area in uh, our apartment and I got to build some bookshelves and I built the coolest fucking bookshelf in the history <laughs> of the world. You and built it? What do you, what do you mean I, you built it? I'm going to take a picture of it. And I'm going to put it on my Instagram and on my Twitter. Um, uh, I already posted a photo of it in my story on Insta, but it's I've got books hanging from this. So first of all, I've got three shelves that are kind of like um, uh, like um, they've got brackets, but they kind of look like they're suspended. Um, the bottom one is like a pastel pink. The middle one is like a pastel sky blue. And the top one is like a yellow and the yellow, it's not really a shelf so much as, as it is a sort of, um, uh, like a little bar, like a tiny thin bar. I don't know how many centimeters it is, but it's like, I don't know, 55 centimeters in length. So what is that? Like fucking, I don't know, 24 inches or something like that. 30 inches, something like that. Um, Maybe a little uh, less, yeah. In length, yeah. And then it's only about like maybe two inches in width, um, but then like uh, in actual depth, it's only like a, a few centimeters. So it's this thin little thing, but it's got like a beveled backside. So basically, um, and then I've got these hooks that are hanging over it, that are cling that are clinging it. And then on the other side, on the bottom part of the hook, I've got um, uh, like twin, is it called twinge? Twine, the twinge. I've got twine. <laughs> I've got twine that is like suspended from it that is hanging my books. And then um, I, I can't really describe how they're hanging, but they're hanging in this like really cool way. And so some of them are facing like binding out and some of them are facing with like the cover out. So my book, my book is on display uh, with the cover out, as well as Sean's <laughs> friend, Hannah, who wrote a book uh, and her cover is out. And then I've got just a couple select books um, that are kind of hanging like one on Terrence Malick and one of like our favorite novels that we've been reading together. And, and, you know, they're interchangeable, but it's just for the sake of just That's putting pretty it up cute. There. Yeah. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and there, like the binding is facing out and, um, I'm going to post a photo of it because it's the fucking coolest thing I've ever done. And basically besides the fact that I'm just happy with myself, I just fucking love woodwork, man. And I know I've talked <laughs> about this before, but I just love to build things. And it's funny because my, my partner, she was like, 
She's like, honestly, when I first met you, I did not think that you were the kind of person that just wanted to like paint stuff all the time. But I'm like, oh fuck, let's just paint this wall and let's get this other cool painting and we can do these colors with these colors and that color. And it's, I was raised by a designer and an artist. And so our house, I used to come home from school and like uh, the hallway wall would just be a different color. Right. And she was a working woman, too. So it's not like uh, she was like a bored like she just loved it, you know. And so on her days off, she'd just be like, I'm going to fucking paint this wall. And so she'd paint walls and she would do not just like I'm going to do it a yellow or I'm going to do it an off white eggshell. No, it would be like I'm going to use sponge art and I'm going to create this like weird, distorted, muted rainbow wall and like shit like that. So I kind of just was always raised around kind of artistic ideas and and I love when I can when I can give into it and I've been able to do that a little bit and and it's great because my part she's like she's like hey that back office room she's like that's your space she's like just do you babe just do you so I'm like fuck yeah so I'm gonna put like I'm gonna like do all kinds of other stuff on some of the other walls because it's only like you know a third of the way done as far as I'm concerned um and I think I think when I told her <laughs> I think when I told her that I was gonna do some stuff in the back office and make an office I don't think she had any idea of how like obsessed i would get with it <laughs> so i think she's yeah, like you were supposed to like hang up a poster of like yeah. uh pamela anderson or something whatever kids in the 90s yeah yeah exactly now and you're like just, freaking building a whole contraption in there yeah and i got like a pink chair for my desk and uh, i got a new desk and we got this cool sofa and um, i've got this little side table with this little like multicolored blanket that from here, it kind of looks like Joseph's amazing Technicolor dream coat for all you theater nerds out there. <laughs> but it's actually in the style of like the Mexican blankets that you see all over in like Tecate and Tijuana and, and in Southern oh, California. Yeah. But it's like oranges and reds and blues and stripes and stuff like that. It's fucking great. Um, and then I've got my little bobblehead Buddha figure and then I've got my, uh, I've got my incense. Anyway, I just, I just love building stuff. And I don't know if people out there love building stuff, but if you've never built anything, just give it a shot. There's something great about working with your hands um, that I absolutely love. So yeah, that's it. That's all I got to say. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's hard for me to visualize because, well, just because I don't have a visual imagination hardly at all. So yeah, I want, I want, to, see, I want to see the picture of it so I can actually see the product. And you should post uh, when you do new stuff, some like uh, uh, timelines so we can see how it's progressing into becoming oh whatever the elevated version of a man cave. There needs to be an elevated term for something that's superior to a man cave but that still has like a masculinity to it in some way the mythic masculine cave it's got to have a different metaphor though somehow like the man palace (laughs) the malice (laughs) yeah because it's not a cave i don't feel cavey i feel very i feel very um, what's a cool word for a cafe? Do they have like cool words? Cause it's not a cafe, but I do, I do have a, a constant stream of, of coffee that, um, I drink in here. So, um, like yeah, in a boat, a home, um, like what's a, what's a cozy word for like a cave or something like that? A womb. It's a man womb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, let's go ahead and get out of here, brother, and wrap this up. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in again. Um, as Troy said, go check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Sign up and, uh, and, and give us some support if you can. A couple bucks a month goes a long way for us. As I said, uh, we got this new producer, Maddie, from Wisecrack, who's coming on board, and we really want to make sure we take care of her as best we can. 
Um, and then we've got some backlog of bonus episodes. We'll start doing some more of that stuff too. Um, that's actually one of the things that will free us up with, with having Maddie on board is we can kind of start scheduling some other chats, bring on some other people just for some informal discussions and things like that. Um, and, uh, and then of course, you know, make sure you give us your topics that you want us to talk about in our next patron led episode. So patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, anything else I'm forgetting to say, dude? Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Adania Marikonski. Yeah.